CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Here's Ken Levine. This is TV pilot season. The networks are right now in the process of making pilots for the TV shows that will premiere later on this fall. So this week, I thought I would focus Hollywood and Levine on TV pilots. First of all, I've got a story of a pilot that David Isaacs and I did a few years ago. Now, this will give you some idea of what it's really like behind the scenes trying to put one of these shows together. People always say, why are pilots so terrible? Well, you'll soon have a better understanding of why. Then I am going to share with you some of the most bizarre failed pilots ever made. Get ready to laugh. You may just fall off the Stairmaster. So, TV pilots, that's what's on tap this week on Hollywood and the Fine. It is so much harder to make a pilot these days because there is so much more interference. Now, this is as a result of the fact that networks now can own shows and they can own studios. So they exert a lot more control. And they also operate out of fear. Fear that the person above them is not going to be pleased. Fear that the show that they said yes to did not test well. So everyone is operating out of fear and it just permeates every moment of the production. I'm going to talk a little bit about one pilot in particular that my partner David Isaacs and I did a number of years ago, and I'm not going to name names or even name the network, but it'll give you a very good idea of the way they think and the way we think and how sometimes those two are not in sync. So this was a pilot that we did for a network and there was a studio attached that the network owned and there was also a production company. So we did this through the production company. And at least at the beginning of the process, we spent most of our time dealing with a particular production company executive. He was the one who gave us all the notes. And when I say all the notes, I mean tons and tons of notes. It got to the point where he was giving us notes on stage direction, 
Yes. I mean, constant line notes, and usually they were, you know, safe notes. They were, explain this again. And, well, we've already explained this like four times. Yeah, but it's, it's, explain it again. And, gee, I don't know if we like her when she does this. And, boy, isn't he a little mean when he says this? And we go, yeah, well, it's it's funny, and he's kind of an asshole character. Yeah, but I just, just, just soften it a little bit. So we would do note after note after note for this executive. And then we also got the notes from the studio. And then we also got the notes from the network. And then we went back to do the second draft. And we went through round after round of notes again. This, by the way, is normal. This is SOP in network pilot writing these days. So we finally turn in the pilot. And the network is happy and the network picks it up. And I'm not even going to talk about all of the casting issues that went along with this because that's a separate story. But when we got involved with this production company and with this particular executive, we said to him, look, here's the way we work. We will take all of your notes and we will follow whatever direction you want until we get on the stage. Once we are in production, we are in charge. This is what we do. This is what we have done for years. And so when we actually get something on the stage, we make the decisions. We're not going to be calling you, what do you think about this bit? What do you think about this line? No, this is our expertise. This is the time when we take over. And he said, okay, fine. So now we cast the show and we're getting ready to go into production. And the first thing that happens is a table reading. And what that is, is the actors sit around a conference table and read the script out loud for the first time. And it gives you a chance to get a feeling of the show, get a sense of what works, what doesn't work, whether or not the story tracks, whether or not a character falls out, whether or not somebody has all the funny lines and another character has nothing but questions, things that just pop out at you when you actually hear it out loud. And the network and the studios and everybody else is there in the room. Now, this used to be something that you could do in a conference room. Because you would have the actors around the table and then you would have chairs ringing the walls and you would have another 10, 11 people, including the network and production people, etc., there listening. Well, now it's 40 people, 60 people, 100 people. And now when you have a table reading, you don't do it around a conference table it's now like the dais of the B'nai B'rith Man of the Year Award. Last year when I helped out on a Carol Burnett pilot, we went to ABC and there was the dais in this like ballroom and there had to be no less than 250 people. there. I have no idea what half of these people were doing or what their involvement was, but there had to be 250, maybe even 350 people. 
a lot of people, not like 10 or 11. But back then, we still had just the 10 or 11 suits in addition to the production people. So this uh, production company executive comes to us a few days before the table reading, and he says, I think we should have a pre-table reading. And I said, what for? And he said, well, so that we can hear it first and we can kind of get a preview of the show before the network hears it. And I said, yeah, well, that's the purpose of the actual table reading. And he said, well, you know, actors get fired. And and I said, yeah, if they get fired, they get fired. If they get fired, it's generally because they're really nervous and doing a pre-table reading for only five or six people is not going to alleviate their nerves in any sense of the word. He said, no, 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 we, we still, we have to do it. I said, oh, okay, we've never done it before, but we'll have a pre-table reading and it will just be the actors in our office and the director and us. And this executive said, wait, wait, no, 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 I, I, I have to be in there with you. We said, no, you don't. This is production. Once we're in production, we run things. We will be the ones judging the script. And if you have a problem with that, fine, we just won't do a pre-table reading. We'll do a table reading the way we were scheduled to. He wrestled with this for about five minutes and finally said, okay, you can do a pre-table reading. So we did. We gathered the cast the day before the table reading, and it was a very good reading, actually. And what we decided to do was go back through the script and then take out 90% of those niggly safe notes that the production company executive gave us. And so we go to the table reading the next day, And he goes, why did you change this? And why did you change that? We said, didn't work. We heard it. It just didn't work. Okay. So we have the table reading. And the table reading goes very well. So now it's on to production. We go to the stage. And the way this worked was that every day for about, I think, four days, the cast would rehearse all day long, and then around 4 o'clock, there would be a run-through, and uh, the studio would be there one day, and after a couple of days, it was the big network run-through. So um, every day was kind of pressure-packed. And what we would do is assemble each night a small group of writers who we really trusted who would come in and help us rewrite. Now, way back in the good old days, way back in the 80s, you would get a lot of money for doing that job. I mean, when David and I had a year when we didn't have a pilot, then we were just going from one show to the next to the next, working one day, working two days, working three days, and we made an awful lot of money doing that. Well, eventually... The studios decided, nah, that's an extravagance. We're going to cut out all of the money for consultants. But you still needed people, right? So then 
showrunners would just ask their friends as a favor, would you come in and help out for a night or two? And you would, and the idea was that if I helped out on the Frasier pilot, then if I had a pilot the next year, the Frasier producers would come and help me. And we always gave very nice gifts back and forth to each other. But it was still a whole lot cheaper for the studios than if they had to pay. But all of that is to say that each night, David and I assembled really uh, an all-star group. There was one night, I remember we had Peter Casey, who was one of the creators of Frasier. We had Bill Stein-Kellner who was one of the showrunners of Cheers during the later years and a very funny guy. Dave Hackle, who was the creator and showrunner of Becker and also worked on Wings and Frasier. And we had Robin Schiff and I think we had somebody else. Uh, Oh, yeah, we had Steve Levitan, who (laughs) is the creator, co-creator of Modern Family. And so we're all gathered for the run-through And one of the Fox development people comes up to Robin Schiff and says, you know, I should know who these people are, but I I really don't. And Robin says, well, let me make it easy for you. If you were paying these people what you used to pay in the past, this is a million dollars. That's who these people are. Anyway, we have our run-throughs, and they go pretty well. Now it's time for the network run-through. This is, I think, three or four days into the process. And the network run-through goes very well. And the network president sits us down to give us notes. And she was very complimentary and said it was very nice to read our script each day because each day it did seem to get better. Great. So she had a few notes, really not much at all, and we went off to the room to rewrite. And again, we had uh, an all-star squad with us. So it took us maybe 45 minutes to do all of the network notes. I mean, it was still now like, 630 and I remember saying is everybody really satisfied with the end of the final scene because it just it, it kind of bugs me I don't know if we've got it yet and they all kind of went yeah well hmm, yeah it's a, okay I, you know maybe and we said look it's early let's pitch on it and we did And we pitched on it, and somebody came up with a better idea. So we wrote that new scene. We still got out of there like at 8 o'clock at night. We write that new scene. Script gets sent out, and we go off for the night. I arrive in the office at 9 a.m. the next morning, and the phone lights up immediately. And I get on the phone, and it is the production company executive... And he is apoplectic. What did you do? He was just, I mean, his head was just exploding. What do you mean? And he says, well, you you, you changed the last scene. Yeah. 
why? Why, why would you do that? I said, well, because we didn't feel that the last scene worked. We felt we needed to do something else. And he goes, well, the network president didn't have a problem with it. And I said, yeah, but we did. We didn't think it was good enough. Do you really think this is going to work? I said, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Not until we see it. Uh, for all I know, this may be much worse. And he goes, all right, I'll make you a deal. You can do this new scene for the run-through today. But if it doesn't work, you'll go back to what you had. And I said to him, first of all, we don't make deals, <laughs> okay, on scenes. Secondly, like I said, this new scene may not work. And if it doesn't work, we'll go back and think of something else, and there will be a new scene tomorrow. And if that new scene doesn't work, there will be a third scene the day after. But we are not going back to the old scene. That's dead. Forget about it. Well, he he just he, he couldn't believe it. Actually, the scene did work really well. The new scene did work just fine. The show didn't get on the air. Oh, there was some more interference, and and this came. <laughs> I love this. Okay, they had to approve the set dressing. By that, I meant the props. They had to approve the chairs in the living room. And at one point, I called the guy over and I took him into the kitchen set and I opened up the refrigerator and there were some food items in the refrigerator and I said, uh, is this okay? You know, are you going to approve this? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, there is a very brief moment in the kitchen scene where one of the characters opens up the refrigerator and you might, maybe, depending upon the camera angle, see the contents of the refrigerator for two, three, maybe four seconds. And what he does is peer into it and study the contents and then he goes, okay, this is fine. (laughs) He didn't realize that it was a joke. It was that kind of thing. And when you are filming the show now, after, this is a multi-camera show, by the way, and when you are filming the show, after every scene, it's like you are swarmed by people with notes. Network people, studio people, people I've never even seen, like 14 people, and they all just descend upon you, and they're all giving you notes at once. It was just maddening. Absolutely mad. I think we need a close-up. Uh, I think we need a two-shot. I don't know. Uh, was his hair okay? Was his, you know, we had a, a studio executive once, and he was a great, great executive, but he had hair notes. He didn't give notes so much about the, the actual contents of the scripts, but he was like obsessed with with characters' hair. 
you know, that, that uh, you know, I, I think that hair uh, on top of his head is like uh, a little too helmet-like and, uh, you know, uh, should her hair fall over her shoulders like that? Hair notes we're getting. So needless to say, this is what everybody goes through. And look, David and I have been doing this a long time, long enough that we feel we're able to do some pushback. We're also at the point in our career where, you know what, fire us and put the show on the air and then just pay us our royalties. Being a creator deserter is a wonderful thing. Uh, but if you're starting out, if you're early in your career, you know, you really can't afford to do that much pushback because if you do, then they're going to say, well, you're difficult to work with and it's going to be harder to get pilots. Like I said, David and I were in a position where we really didn't care. And here's the thing. If the show doesn't go you the writer creator gets blamed even if you do all of their notes even if you cast the person they insist upon and that person just kills the project you get blamed and my feeling is since you're going to get blamed Anyway, you might as well do it your way. That's just a look into the process of a typical television pilot. I'm going to go take a Valium, and I'll be back after this. For every TV pilot that gets on the air, there are usually 10 or 15 that don't. Shows that you never hear about. At one time, networks used to burn them off by airing them in the summer. And they would call those things, you know, a summer festival. We used to call it failure theater. But now they don't even do that. And so all of these pilots that were made now just sit on shelves somewhere and no one's the wiser. Until a writer named Lee Goldberg wrote a book called Unsold Television Pilots, 1955 to 1989. This is a thick book. This is like a brick, but it is great bathroom reading, and you can just peruse this thing, and you're just going to scratch your head at every page at some of the unbelievable pilots that got purchased and got made and did not get on the air. And so what I thought I would do is uh, give you some of the highlights. These are a few of the actual pilots that were made. And again, thanks to Lee Goldberg and his book, Unsold Television Pilots, 1955 to 1989. You can get it on Amazon. Okay, here's one, Danger Team. This was on ABC, 1990. Kathleen Beller plays a bookkeeper turned private eye who solves crime with the help of three animated clay figures. All right, sounds promising, certainly. Uh, Another ABC show, Good Against Evil, 1977. Dak Rambo is a writer who happens to fall in love with Satan's girlfriend. God, don't you hate it when that happens. High Risk, this is another ABC show. 
<laughs> Great development at ABC. 1976, six former circus performers team up to solve crimes. Personally, I think a better title might be Justice Day Soleil. But there is Judge D also at, you guessed it, ABC, 1974, starring Kai Day. And he's the guy who played Wofat on the original Hawaii Five-0. Well, Kai Day is a roving judge in 7th century China deciding right and wrong and solving crimes. Now, David and I had an idea for a show, but it was set in the 8th century, and no one wanted to do that one. Here's another one from ABC. Madam Sin, 1972. Maybe my favorite of all of the ABC shows. (laughs) Betty Davis as an all-powerful dragon lady who kidnaps a former CIA agent, played by Robert Wagner. She brainwashes him with a special ray gun and enlists him in her high-tech global intelligence agency that operates out of her Scottish castle. Again, I am not making any of these. I could not. Okay, let's go to NBC now. 1988 for McClone, master thespian Howie Long. Yeah, the football player Howie Long is pursued by evil clones. Mama the Detective on CBS, 1981. Esther Roll, remember her, Florida, from Good Times, as a maid who solves crimes. Nick Knight, also CBS, 1989. Rick Springfield is a crime-fighting vampire on the San Francisco police force. Here's one that I remember actually seeing. It's called Ethel is an Elephant, It is a CBS pilot from 1980, a New York photographer who shares his apartment with a baby elephant. Moving on to Great Day, ABC, 1977. As described, this pilot was supposed to illustrate how fun life is as a skid row bum in New York's Bowery. Featured in the cast, Billy Barty and Spodioti. Now, from NBC, 1989 comes A Little Bit Strange, a widower raising a bizarre family. He and his sons are warlocks. His daughter is a witch. His mother-in-law, a psychic. His brother, a soul-singing bat. Yes, a bat. And his nephew is made of mud. A normal girl marries into this family. CBS, 1988, we have Mars Base One, a family adjusting to life on Mars, where they live next door to a Soviet technician and his American stripper wife. Now, they make a note in the book that the 1988 uh, Writers Guild strike forced cancellation of this project. I think part of the problem was that they wanted to shoot on location. Mixed Nuts, ABC, 1977, not to be confused with Mixed Nuts, one of the worst movies of all time. Well, this TV pilot was about the lives and hilarious misadventures of the doctors and psychiatric patients of a mental institution. Mr. and Mrs. Dracula, ABC, 1980 and 1981. They made this pilot twice. 
the Dracula family moves to a New York apartment. Now, in the second version, they live in the South Bronx. Ah, now it makes sense. Sergeant T.K.U., Y.U., NBC, 1979. Korean stand-up comic Johnny Yoon is a Korean LAPD detective slash stand-up comic. Now, this pilot was actually in competition with one of ours. That's a pilot we had called Characters about a Nichols and May type comedy team. Neither got on the schedule. Instead, NBC picked up Pink Lady and Jeff, which was a comedy variety show starring a stand-up comic and a Japanese girl group who couldn't speak English. (laughs) We lost out to that. ABC, 1964, going back a ways here. Take me to your leader. Two aliens from Venus come to Earth, meet an inventor, and go into business with him, selling to unknowing Earthlings products created for another planet. I could do a crossover with Shark Tank. Then from CBS... In 1983 comes 13, 13th Avenue. Now, this one features a widower and his son who move into a Greenwich Village apartment building inhabited by a model who's a witch, a CPA who's a werewolf, a lawyer who's a vampire, a superintendent who's a troll, and their psychiatrist. Again, let's stagger way back. 1966, Where's Everett on CBS? Okay, here's one you're not going to believe. Ready? Alan Alda, of all people, as a young father who goes to get the morning paper and finds that aliens have left an invisible baby on his doorstep. Oh, man, if only I had known about this when I worked with him on Mesh. I'm going to repeat that because it's so absurd. Alan Alda, as a young father who goes to get the morning paper and finds that aliens have left an invisible baby on his doorstep. So they raise an invisible baby. Yazoo, NBC, 1984. William Conrad, he was the fat man from Jake and the Fat Man. He's also the narrator on the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. Well, so you can picture him, right? Big fat guy. Uh, Is a widowed journalist who goes fishing one day, falls asleep in the boat, and wakes up in a magical world called Yazoo, populated by the peppercorn puppets. How did this not get on the air? Let's go to 1983 and an entry from CBS called After George. Susan St. James as a widow who discovers her late husband programmed his personality into the computer that operates their house. You know, you had my mother the car, now you have my husband the hard drive. Justin Case. That's Justin like a first name. Justin Case, ABC, 1988. This is one of the 12,000 ghost pilots, but this one, believe it or not, featured the great George Carlin as a ghost private eye. Where was he in his career in 1988 that he's doing just in case for ABC? 1965, CBS had a pilot called Who Goes There? Two troublesome ghosts haunting a Southern California tract house, materialize as General Custer, an Indian chief running dog. 
1965, can't do that show today. In 1979, NBC had a show called It's a Dog's Life. And this was from Norman Lear and the people who brought you all in the family. And it was a show where actors were dressed as dogs long before Wilfred. K-9000, Fox finally gets into the act, 1989. A loose cannon on the LAPD has a microchip implanted in his brain by a hot woman scientist, allowing him to talk telepathically with his new partner, a genetically enhanced German Shepherd. And uh, while we're on similar subjects, let's go to Puchinski from NBC, 1990. Dog pilots are really big. Stanley Puchinski is a tough, ill-mannered cop who has been gunned down in the line of duty and reincarnated as a talking, flatulent English bulldog. Now we have the Elizabeth McQueenie story. Way, way back, NBC, 1959. Again, Betty Davis, the great Betty Davis. Well, she stars as the leader of an all-female dance troupe that travels through the Old West. And finally, we have Murder in Music City, NBC, 1979. Sonny Bono as a Nashville songwriter who becomes a detective. And I guess whenever he catches the bad guy, he says, I got you, babe. Aha. Okay, so there is just a small sample, but page after page has jaw-dropping entries. Again, the book is called Unsold Television Pilots, 1955 to 1989 by Lee Goldberg. And yes, a few of our duds are in there too. Hollywood and Levine continues right after this. If you go to YouTube, you might be able to find one or more of those pilots. Good luck! told you they were bizarre, right? Okay, that's going to do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Randy Thomas, and Lee Goldberg. You can follow me at Ken Levine on Twitter. You can also email me anytime with any questions or comments, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. A programming note. Just like last year, I am going to be reviewing the Academy Awards right here on this podcast. The Academy Awards are going to be Sunday night, March 4th. What I'm going to do is watch it, review it, record it, and hopefully the podcast will drop sometime early Monday morning, March 5th. But again, for the second year in a row... I will be reviewing the Academy Awards. Okay, thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.